Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, listeners. I want to thank our good friends at Slipped Disc for their enthusiastic support of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to check out slipdisc.com for the latest inside information on classical music now. Today's episode with my longtime mentor and friend, the one and only Wynton Marsalis, begins our celebration of Black History Month. I hope you enjoy it. Wynton Marsalis is a living legend. The Pulitzer Prize winning composer, ambassador of the arts, and artistic director of jazz at Lincoln Center plays the trumpet with a warm and rich tone that is instantly recognizable throughout the world. It's a sound he was encouraged to develop from an early age. Sweet Edison was a mentor of mine. He said, yeah, baby boy, you got to get more weight on your sound. You got to get more hair on your sound. I picked up a trumpet for you in Europe. And I want you to play this horn for at least one or two months, and I'm going to come back and hear how your sound is. And he came back and he heard how I played. He said, I'm going to take my horn back. That's not the horn. <laughs> You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krauss, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. I got to start with the sound you make on the trumpet. Nobody sounds like you. I remember the first time I heard it, it was on a record my dad bought me. The tune was um, Angel Eyes. I was hooked right away. That's the way I wanted to sound. And it became my gold standard. Well, thank you for your over-assessment of me and your kindness towards me. You know, I mean, the comment on the depth and beauty of your sound and also the originality of it and the pride I have when I hear it. You know, we all have a journey we have to go on. And uh, even in the age I am now, of course, much older than you, but we continue to go on and, and, and work on our stuff. You're not that much older than me, but <laughs> when you were younger, did you also listen and emulate other trumpet players? I mean, who inspired you? Yeah, mainly people from records, you know. I liked Maurice Andre's sound. 
in terms of how he, the sound he got on a piccolo trumpet, kind of characteristic sound. And jazz, of course, Miles Davis loved his sound, kind of dark. And uh, with Miles, it was the, the record, Someday My Prince Will Come. I listened to that record over and over and over again. The feeling is sound, and Freddie Hubbard in the 70s, everybody loved Freddie. Kind of big sound. Remember a ballad he played called uh, Skylark. So, you know, I love that sound. Clifford Brown, from, from Clifford Brown with strings. I could play, even now, I could play Clifford Brown solo on Memories of You. And, and it, it wasn't a trumpet player, but the other person I listened to a lot was Train. I learned countdown on the trumpet. I remember practicing it in high school. I listened to those people over and over those records. Yeah, over and over again. Yeah. Right. And do you think all that listening actually made an impact on your playing? Do you think you really started to sound like Maurice Andre or or Miles Davis? No, <laughs> not really. I don't think so. Those people used to always say when I was younger that I sounded like Miles, and I would always crack a joke. To my brother, we'd be talking. i say, man, he must not be able to hear. Miles never sounded this sad. Even when he was 18 or 19, he was better than what I sound. And a Sweets Edison was a mentor of mine. Even though Sweet style was from another era, so I wasn't sophisticated enough to imitate him. But I loved him as a person. And he always, he, he didn't like my sound. So he was always saying, yeah, baby boy, you, you got to get more, more weight on your sound. You got to get more hair on your sound. Your sound is too... It's, it's too light. He said, I picked up a trumpet for you in Europe, and I want you to play this horn for at least one or two months, and I'm going to come back and hear how your sound is. And he came back and he heard I played. He said, I'm going to take my horn back because it's not the horn. You need to work on your sound. <laughs> Tell me about when you first started playing trumpet. Were you very serious right away? I mean, man, I didn't like the trumpet. I, was, I didn't want to get a ring around my, my lips. I didn't practice. I remember once. I even put a chemical experiment in my trumpet. Like I had a chemistry set and I put an experiment in it. <laughs> Me and my brothers, we lived kind of in the country, man. We would do all kinds of stuff like catch bees and do stuff country boys did, man, you know. Uh, I don't know, uh, but yeah. Yeah, we were country, man. So we were here. So I, now I, re I remember having a trumpet, but I wasn't serious about playing it. I remember cleaning it. And I remember how it smelled. You know how a case smells? Yeah. That yeah, kind of, yeah. I remember that. That's a very specific smell. Um, so your father, Ellis, he was a great pianist. Did he also insist that you play the piano? My dad was not a... Uh, he would tell me later to learn how to play the piano, but he wasn't. He had been harder on my brother, Bradford, like making him play piano and clarinet, but that didn't work. Like, my father was not the type of person that would make you do stuff. He wasn't going to aspire more for you than you did for yourself. I mean, I mean, most of the times I was just making my dad laugh, man, because he, he was struggling when I was growing up. He was having a hard time. And I was always with him. I always hung with him. But I didn't really like the music. I just like hanging with him because he was real serious. But I joked around with him constantly. And he wasn't, he didn't joke a lot. But I, I would always make him laugh, you know. So even though your dad was a working musician and you were following in his footsteps, your relationship wasn't just about music. No, because my, my dad, would he would do stuff like he taught me how to catch a baseball on one hop. I remember once me and him set a basketball goal up. Then we went to the junkyard and got a pipe and we went and got a goal and we measured everything out and dug a hole. It was just me and him. And when we, we measured it out and we put cement, we mixed cement, we put it in the ground. It was 10 foot, four inches tall. So I learned how to shoot high, you know. <laughs> but he would do that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I was around him. It, it, it wasn't because I could play. He didn't think yeah. I could play. 
it wasn't an environment for kids either. It was like clubs and dives. But I like being in the place with the old people and hear how nasty they were talking. And people down on luck a lot of times too, man. You know, alcoholics, people struggling. Especially if you're a musician, you finish late. So when you're in a club, you see what happens at the end of the night. And, and these were not my glamorous places. It's just, just me and him. I, I just hung with him just because uh, I, I like him. I would hang with him. Right. Well, actually, hanging with my parents is what led me to meet you. They took me to the Blue Note to hear you play, and I sat right in the front row, just underneath your bell. I was the <laughs> only kid in the club, and it was amazing. I mean, I loved your parents and your daddy. You know, just the love and the feeling, man, of your old family, your daddy, how cool he was. He yeah. was. You know, I'll never forget this one time my mom brought me in for a lesson with you. We drove into the city, and at the end of the lesson, you gave me your trumpet. It completely blew my mind because when I took it home, I sounded like you. You were still in this trumpet. I still don't understand how the instrument can carry the sound of the player that owned it and played it for so many years. You know, sometimes you meet people, everything is spiritual. And when you touch any, it, the, physicists, the physicists are figuring it out now about these particles and how stuff is. And everything is connected a certain way. It's all connected, man. And it's, we don't understand it. So we tend to take our limited understanding and we get our concept of reality from that understanding. And anything that's outside of that understanding, we think, well, it's mysterious or it's something I want to be true. It's not a fact, it's a feeling. And you can feel those undertones. And they, yeah, they exist in inanimate objects that people have played, inanimate things that people have touched. Their spirit stays on it. That's why sometimes spirit people ask somebody to bring something, the person they're trying to conjure had. And, and people think it's hocus pocus, but it's not. I mean, sometimes it is, but, but a lot of times it's not. It's a spiritual thing. You know, I, I taught a lot of kids, but I didn't have the same feeling I had with you. I can remember the feeling of you as a kid, seeing you at Carnegie Hall. You know, I can remember. It was a long time ago. How do you remember I don't remember. That? I don't forget nothing, man. No, Come on. We're connected across a lot of time. People look at me and you, and they might think if they're eight or nine, these are two old guys. They won't know the difference between it. It's like when I play, I, I like to play for elementary school bands, you know. I would just go sit in the trumpet section. Of course, they didn't know who I was or anything. A little kid next to me would be maybe nine years old, and he'd be like, well, you played the part pretty good. You know, do you take private lessons? Well, how long have you been playing? And I would say something like 42 years. And then they would just look at you like, like 40 years to a nine-year-old seems like you Methuselah or something. You're not still alive. <laughs> well, you've always sounded amazing. It's hard to believe the trumpet was ever difficult for you. Was there a point when it was challenging? Yeah, I feel like I struggled with my horn the whole time. I felt like when I was 25, I got better. Something happened. My playing improved. But in the beginning, the music we were playing, was it was mainly like for singing and guitars and so loud. So it wasn't about you connecting with people. And um, it, it, when I could play with an orchestra, which was not frequently, then I could kind of hear it. A lot of times gigs I was on, I couldn't even hear myself playing. I mean, it's, it's loud. I feel like once I got to be on the road, I was always unsure. I always felt like a lot of guilt that I got so much publicity before I felt I could play. And uh, I was always mouthy. So, you know, I was saying a lot, but it wasn't because I felt I could play. Just things about the culture and the society seemed obvious to me. So right. it created a lot of problems because, you know, you want a young person saying, especially a black person, you supposed to just be grateful you're there. And then uh, I think when I was around 24, 25, then I started to feel like my playing improved. And then later, when I was when it was really hard, I had an operation when I was uh, 
Man, this was like 2000 and... Oh God, that's right, your lip. Man, when I had that operation, yeah. that was like 2006, maybe. Oof. Right. I had to relearn how to play. That was rough. When I went first hit the first note, I said, oh, <laughs> okay. This is going to be tough right oh. here. And how long was the process to build it back up? Man, I'd be, I still, I have to say, still to this day, I don't have the accuracy that I had. I don't, I will never be like that, I don't think. I think that's it for that. Yeah, because I had the size of a pea taken out of my lip. So, man, it was a struggle. Any kind of change, in your, even you get something between your teeth and you play, it's different. Man, you imagine my whole Amish was completely different. It'd be stuff I never would miss, man. It became a struggle for me. Well, despite that operation or any struggles you've had, when you play, the trumpet completely disappears and the audience hears exactly what's in your head. Was there a point when you realized that the trumpet would not be an obstacle and pretty much whatever you can think of, you could play? I think by the time I got into my uh, my early 30s, I was playing better. You know, in terms of how I remember trying to practice to be more vocal. Like it sounded contrived at first when I was trying to learn how to scoop notes a certain way, bend notes, play with air, do unusual effects. You know, a lot of things I would work on to be like I was talking. And I worked on, I need to go back. I stopped working on, I need to go back to working on. At one point I was really trying to do like a lot of different stuff. Scooping notes a certain way, playing it like I'm talking, hollering, you know, shouting, I would think about. Sometimes I would take up something and read it and play it like I was speaking it. Like I would look at a page and I would start reading. We would lead a discussion about the music industry. I try to play my housekeeper, Anna Castile. I, I play stuff and ask her if she understood what I was saying. That's funny. So you've been advocating for music and arts education for years now. How does playing an instrument, even if you're not going to be a professional musician, how does it benefit someone's life? Well, I think if you can play an instrument, it teaches you so many things. Discipline, it helps you to focus your personality. It teaches you to listen to other people. Playing in an ensemble teaches you how to fulfill familial roles because instruments fall into families with different functions. It teaches you how to deal with time and math because you're dealing with all things that unfold at a regular place and you have to remember things of repetition. It enriches your, your mind because you learn melody and harmony. You learn the depth feel. It teaches you how to objectify Sounds like you remember the horse when you make the trumpet sound like a horse on a sleigh ride. Right. It's, hey, make this, this instrument can represent something else, or the sound of a train. You have a library of stuff you can play that comes from across across history of Western music. And uh, the fact that you learn how to hear music also can help you. And you play music, listen to other people's music, and understand what their objectives are. You learn things like call and response, uh, 2D parts that you're playing with everybody, a harmony part a background part, foreground, all things that are part of living. Sometimes you're in the foreground, sometimes you're in the background. And uh, you also get a sense of achievement as an individual and as a group. So individually, you improve on your instrument, but you also can be a part of a band where y'all are trying to compete or do something or play a football game, whatever it is. And man, you can feel a sense of, wow, you know, we, we played that. And also with a band, especially when you're younger, the band is so sad when you start off. And when you think of how much improvement it shows over time, you realize just, when you work on things, they get better. And then you interface with adults. You entertain your colleagues, kids in your school or your parents. You give them something to do. And uh, on and on. There's so many social things that music is important to help develop 
and kids. I think for the ones who don't pick up instruments, it's important for them to be in choirs or help to activate the musical part of their personality. Mm-hmm. Rhythms are important and dance is important. Now we've eliminated a lot of that. It's too bad. Like social dance, we need to bring that back. People used to dance, everybody was dancing. Like this whole kind of social thing about dancing and whether you can dance and you can and you don't have right. rhythm. So it's right. not true. Man, you know how many ballrooms they built around America in right. like between 1900 and in 1920? People dance. Everybody's not going to play. It's kind of like if I said everybody has to play soccer. Everybody's not going to do that. But but everybody can dance because there's dances in schools. There's dances everywhere. You just can't have the same vulgarity, vocal right. music for everybody. Right. I mean, people dance to music long before they start cursing to music. I played hundreds of dances in high school. I mean, we played a lot, like four gigs a week. I joined a band when I was 13 and I saw people dance. Some could dance, some couldn't, but it was social. Everybody was dancing, having a good time. It was all kind of people, black people, white people, young people, old people, wedding receptions, people dance. That's what we played for. Right. You've been touring throughout the United States for years now. Is there a message in the music that you hope gets delivered to the communities that you play in? Yeah, I just think I would like to re-mythologize how we conceive of ourselves as Americans. I think our country's mythology does not serve us well because it's too segregated, too too much racism. And that's not because of this moment where everybody's talking about it. You know, I've been talking about this stuff. And I think we need to discover how to embrace one another. And the music can teach us how to embrace each other in a non-fake way. Like my relationship with you is not fake. When I saw you, I didn't look at you like, here's a, a white kid or here's a Jewish kid or whatever it is. I wasn't thinking about you like that, man. You're a kid. And my teacher, when I was in high school, was a white guy. He didn't look at me like that. I, he taught me. I remember when he told me that his wife was too prejudiced that I couldn't come to their home. He explained it to me in very adult terms. He said, this is my wife. I'm not going to leave my wife because she don't want you to come into my house. <laughs> How old were you then? You know, I was 15 or 16. I was, I mean, I wasn't like today where people right. fall apart every time somebody tells them something. That is a different time. So it seems today you wouldn't go into that with kids because they're kids till they're 100. In that time, it wasn't like that. So if I could do anything, it would just get people to see the best of what has happened here and to have them try to imitate the best. Not to think the worst has not happened because it has, but to let the, the path toward uh, improvement come through he, like you have two modes. You have to say, I am not going to do the worst, but you have to also say, I am going to do the best. Like you notice, you started, you were telling me about sounds. You say, man, I love this sound. I want to do this sound. I wanted to, you didn't say, man, I listened to all these trumpets with sounds I hated. And I realized I didn't want to sound like them. Now you could have said that, but come up the positive frame of reference. I'm proud of that. I can't tell you how proud I am, really. I, I brag on you all the time, man. You don't know it. And, and I'm proud of your mama, man. She was in there for you. She had to go through changes to get you to my house. I mean, I wasn't it's the true. easiest to get in touch with. She would always be, you know, <laughs> it's David's mom. <laughs> now we could, you know, I mean, I was the young guy. I wasn't, I wasn't settled, but she was, no, no man, I love her. Yeah, well, she was in there for your, man, you know, your mom. <laughs> Come on, man. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. 
Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly 